The Venetians, if there was one characteristic that really defined them, it was negotiation. They were master negotiators. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am happy to be joined by K.M. Butler, author of the novel House Eratoli. Historical fiction is first fiction. The historical is an adjective that describes it. K.M. Butler is an author of historical novels that highlight the similarities between modern readers and their ancestors. His debut Viking Age novel, The Raven and the Dove, portrays the struggle of identity, culture, and religion when Norse settlers and Christians in northern France lived together. His next book, The Welsh Dragon, tells the story of Henry Tudor's 14-year exile that transformed him into the man who defeated Richard III at Bosworth. His newest release, House Eratoli, takes readers on a historical adventure in medieval Venice. K.M. Butler lives in Pennsylvania with his wife and two daughters, who always want more blood and talking animals in his stories. Today, I'll be talking with Butler about his new novel, House Eratoli. Can you start by giving us the political, social, and historical context of medieval Venice at the time of your novel? I know that entails a lot, but maybe you can just kind of summarize it for us. Sure, sure. So what's worth knowing about this time period is that in most of Europe, the countries were structured according to a monarchy, uh, Mm -hmm. where you have king, you have the royal family, and then you have the court that surrounds them. Venice is one of the mercantile maritime republics like Genoa, um, like Pisa was a, a little bit earlier than this time frame, where it was structured around first sea trade. So Venice's power didn't come from uh, from, from land ownership and, and a feudal system. It came from, from trade networks and the, the merchant class. And instead of an aristocracy, it was the merchant houses which controlled the government. Uh, so Venice was one of those mercantile maritime republics. Sea power was their advantage. So their galleys were the fastest galleys in, in the world. They, they dominated the seas whenever they fought against them. Uh, smaller forces of Venetian galleys fought off the, the, the Turks repeatedly. Uh, the only real peers that they had were the Genoese, and they fought a number of wars against them, uh, some of which they won, some of which they didn't. The other thing worth noting about Venice is, is in addition to the merchant houses, unlike most of Europe, Venice was known for their lack of piety. <laughs> most of Europe at the time was heavily Christian. They were, they were very, faith kind of ruled them either in, in fact or in theory. Um, even the people who misbehaved did so with the understanding that, that you know, they had a conflicted nature. They realized that, you know, this, this is a violation of God's, God's plan. The Venetians were much more practical. <laughs> there were several times when they went to war against the papal states. Uh, there were several times that they um, 
suffered papal interdictions and were ex excommunicated as a whole. And generally speaking, their attitude is like, eh, this might make it a little bit more difficult to secure trade treaties, but whatever. They really, it really didn't affect their their policies um, directly. So they were they they were much more uh, <laughs> secular <laughs> than most of their peers, including other maritime republics like Genoa. The last thing to know about them is that the Venetians, if there was one characteristic that really defined them, it was negotiation. They were master negotiators. At one point in the League of Cam uh, Cambrai, they were fighting against the entire known world at the time. <laughs> France, England, Spain, uh, Sicily, uh, the Papal States, uh, Florence, uh, the, the Austrians, the, the Byzantine, the remnant of the Byzantine Empire at the time, they were all fighting against Venice and through negotiation and pitting one against the other, Venice was very quickly able to cause the entire league to unravel um, where they lost very little uh, when any other nation would have been completely annihilated. They were just fantastic being able to um, uh, negotiate new treaties. So that that cunning, the secularism, and the focus on merchant uh, houses as opposed to uh, an aristocracy were were big differences that had massive impacts on the way that that Venice ran itself and the dynamic that you would experience there compared to other places. And what is it that caught your interest and inspired you to write a novel about this? time period and place in history? So whenever I am investigating stories to tell, you know, one of the things that, that anyone who's read a number of my books will, will, will see is that I don't write series. Uh, I, I feel like too often the first book of a series was written for a reason and the subsequent books were written because you already wrote the first book, which is not a good reason to, to compel a reader to spend money on, on your story. Um, so all of my stories are focused around a central fact, figure, question, curiosity of history. With uh, the Welsh dragon, it was what would living in exile, on the run, fearing for your life, do to a person's psyche? And the figure of, of Henry Tudor. With the raven and the dove, it was what would have been like in that very first moment when the Norris raiding demons <laughs> come up to your, your Frankish town and say, hey, you know what? We're gonna sit next to you and live with you. You know, wh what would those tensions be? With House Eratoli, it was really about, the story really focused on division, the division of subtle differences in interpretation of, of events and how different reactions to those events can lead to these massive upheavals among families, among governments, among, among whole, whole nations. Um, and, and really, the, the, it didn't start with that, though. Where it started with was, I was reading John Julius Norwich's History of Venice, and it, it, he really writes in, in sweeping narratives of, of kind of plot lines that occur, not necessarily uh, chronologically. And one of them was talking about uh, the Doge Marin Fallier. Mar Marino Faliero, uh, actually, in, in Italian. Um, and he was a, a, a doge, the, the leader of the Republic, who attempted to take over the government. And a patriotic prostitute actually <laughs> revealed the plot, uh, and, and he, was, he was executed along with his leadership. <clears throat> About 10 years later, there was another doge who died mysteriously, but intriguingly, 
the Council of Ten, which was the kind of the the the, the cabal that really ruled ruled the government, um, ordered all records of any charges against that Doge Lorenzo Celsi to be to be destroyed. So they purged all of the records of everything that happened from official and private records throughout the Republic. No one knows the circumstances of Lorenzo Celsi's death. Uh, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, had to, I had to tell the story about that. And so that really, really got me thinking, of what, would, what would the circumstances be? What were the, what were the factors in the, the uh, movements that were at foot at that time in Venice that could have been involved? And so the story kind of emerged as, a, as attempting to answer that question of, of what exactly led to that moment. And within it, it really, I kind of found the story of this family, the, the Aratoli, uh, who owned their own merchant house. And the way that this, a conspiracy impacts them in initially very subtle ways that grow into these massive rifts among the different members. And it, it's, it's really, a, it really is a story of how, you know, great slights come from tiny causes and, and, and how, it, how that macro to micro uh, trauma translates. So can you talk a little more about how you found your way into the story by creating this family, the Aratolis? Who do they represent? And then you also note that they are historically authentic. Can you talk about what that means? Sure, sure. So, so first, I, I do want to say that the Aratoli themselves did not exist. By historically authentic, what I mean is that that the each of the characters is based upon archetypes who did exist at the time. So uh, Marco is uh, is an aspiring artist. Um, art and literature were huge factors of and uh, heavily influential on these these uh, these merchant republics uh, as different houses were attempting to to gain influence over each other and demonstrate their power. They were, they were cultivating and uh, sponsoring different artists to, to kind, of, kind of laud, how, look how wonderful, look how wonderful the Medici are. We have, we, we're, we're sponsoring Leonardo da Vinci, things like that. So it, it was a part of the reason why, why the Italian Renaissance occurred. Well, the big reason why the Italian Renaissance occurred was because these merchant houses were trying to show off. And so they started sponsoring all of these intelligista. Um, so Marco represents that. Niccolo represents the, the duty separated from the moral limitations of the time that was so common in, in Venetians. Uh, Flavio represents a more traditional medieval styling where he's, he's much more, he, he has more of the aristocratic bent to him. Um, his, their, their sister Asperia represents kind of the duty bound uh, matriarch. Their sister Camilla represents more of the, um, more of the, more, more of the real young woman. <laughs> and how, you know, some people just want to have a little fun. The, the, the Octavia type from, uh, from uh, Roman history where she was, she was all about having the fun regardless of the consequences. Um, you know, so they all represent these different, these different archetypes of characters who were common and very familiar in this time in Venice. Um, so by historically authentic, what I mean is that for every action that they take and every behavior that, that they show, there are authentic historical examples of those individuals within the Venetian Republic at the time. Um, 
as far as how it all kind of came together, uh, part of me at the time was was influenced by the Count of Monte Cristo. And um, I felt like the Venetian spirit was very pragmatic, very practical. Um, they would, they would, yet at the same time, they were still very passionate. You know, there's, there's a sense of this Italian passion that absolutely lived in the Venetians at the same time. It made for an interesting dichotomy where you had a very cold, sometimes, decision-making process about how they would engage in activities. But then you also had the passion of, of vendetta and pride and uh, uh, status that still, still played in them. And so... All of that is on display within the Eretoli, <laughs> not just within individual members, but within um, within the whole group in different ways. And it shows those different uh, manifestations. Can you tell us about some of the real historical figures that come into play in this story? Um, maybe about some that we are familiar with, that readers are probably familiar with, and some that you think we should be familiar with, but maybe aren't. Sure. So... Uh... There, there are a number of authentic historical figures at the time. Um, the, probably the most, most entertaining one is Francesco uh, Petrarch, uh, of whom the Petrarchan sonnet is, is named. He wrote, uh, he wrote extensively. Uh, he wrote uh, a number of, uh, of, of poems. Uh, he, but at the time, he was primarily known as a diplomat. People, you know, the poetry was an interesting affectation, but that wasn't really why people knew him. He was a diplomat originally working for Florence. Uh, he 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 was stationed in, in Rome, all throughout Italy, really. Uh, and he had been he had built a reputation as a as a very skilled negotiator, a wise man. Um, Petrarch shows up, and in and during this time in Venice, Petrarch truly did visit Venice at this time and stay with uh, local merchant house families um, uh, during his stay. So all of that is authentic, uh, and he kind of gets involved with uh, <laughs> some of the Eretoli as they as they're attempting to unravel this conspiracy. But he's kind of a catalyst uh, to to some of the action in the in the story. Uh, one of the interesting uh, one of the interesting storylines with with Petrarch is that as a young woman, there was a woman who as a young man, rather, there was a woman who he fell in love with, and um, she rejected him for someone who had more land and more more holdings, and he never forgot it. It was it was a it was a pain he carried his whole life, and so uh, it was one of those little things that that I, that I fit into the story uh, to show a little bit of sympathy and kind of humanize humanize some of these figures that we we see in in history who who they seem kind of stodgy and and uninteresting, but in reality it was. They're, they're kind of cool people. <laughs> um, a couple other figures that are, are historical, uh, uh, Marco Cornaro, uh, who became the doge after Lorenzo Celsi. Lorenzo Celsi himself is a, is a figure in the story. So two, two different doges uh, uh, who, again, are, the, are the, the, the titular heads of the Venetian Republic, uh, as well as uh, uh, Francesco de Carrera. He was the Duke of Padua at the time, and he was a constant uh, thorn in the side of Venice. Uh, one of Venice's uh, biggest mistakes, I would say, because the, the Venetian Republic actually inserted him as the Duke of Padua. Um, he very quickly took over, became a despot of Padua, and uh, never missed an opportunity to to stick it 
to, to the Venetians, including uh, joining their enemies on multiple occasions. So he, he shows up in the story. Um, but th those figures are uh, historically authentic. Uh, I tried to capture the spirit of them as much as I could, uh, given what we know. Um, and again, there are no there are no enemies in in stories. There are no bad guys. They're just antagonists. And so, for each of these characters, as I'm as I'm trying to show them, you know, you try to try to give each of them what are they? What is their motivation? What are they trying to achieve? What are what what was their childhood like? You know, as you're starting to flesh these out and really try to understand what made these people, what made them tick. Can you comment on the role of women in Venetian society? And also, I'm curious to know more about the role of brothels. Yes. So uh, it is an interesting one because Venice was Venice was not very not a very good place to live if you were a woman at this time. Uh, Venetian culture was heavily masculine. Uh, men made the decisions and women kind of had to deal with it. But that said, and throughout all of history, women were still heavily influential. Women still controlled the families. In many cases in these merchant houses, women were responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of a lot of the businesses. Um, uh, political power was, was in men's hands, but women still had influence and appreciation within functional families. Now, of course, there are dysfunctional families where the men tried to try to storm over. Generally speaking, they didn't do very well because you didn't have that support that, that a contributing mother or wife is able to provide. Um, so you, you, what you find throughout Venetian society at this time is that women had a role that was seen as distinct from men's role. And when either one tried to go too far in the other direction, they kind of got their hands slapped. Um, sometimes this led to a lot of unpleasant circumstances for women. Um, there was no toleration of premarital sex, of relationships outside of, of uh, what was considered a pure appropriate relationship. Um, it would destroy a woman's future if it was exposed. And so families went to great lengths to try to prevent any sort of scandal from, from erupting. Um, women also had very little recourse in the case of, abu of an abusive husband. Um, and that, uh, that leads to a very different culture from what we experience. Now, even from what we, what we see in other cultures of the time, um, anywhere in the Middle Ages, an abusive husband was a challenge for, for women. But in Venice, they really had very few alternatives to get out of that. Um, and that's why for, for you see brothels being such a, so common in, in Venice at the time. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's one part of it. <clears throat> the other part of it, I think, is also simply Venetians are, well, Venetians were uh, very focused around the transactional. <laughs> they were merchants. They, they looked at everything as everything, every action, every, every object is having value. And so brothels kind of naturally tie into that uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that overcame some of, the, uh, some of the religious restrictions that were so common at the time. Uh, you didn't really see the, the movements to eradicate brothels that occasionally popped up in other countries, not in Venice. Moreover, brothels actually served as a massive advantage in negotiations with other countries, where the, the, there were, there were high-class brothels where the leaders would take visiting uh, officials and visiting ambassadors and kind of wine and dine them 
and and show them some of the advantages of working with Venice. So it became part of the the, the state diplomatic strategy uh, to to cultivate these brothels because they had a had a very tangible effect on on how pliable uh, visiting diplomats were. So after talking to you for a few minutes now, it's very clear that you're you've done a lot of research. You're very well learned in this history. But you've written a, a fiction novel that is full of romance and drama. Can you talk about the balancing act that you have to do in order to to create a novel? And when you're writing, say, a first draft or a second draft, do you find yourself leaning too far in one direction or another as far as history goes or as far as um, engaging fictional craft elements go? Well, my wife would be the first to tell you that my first drafts are garbage. Uh, and I, I, I agree with her. Uh, it, this this novel was actually the first one that I that I wrote to the level where I felt it was ready to to be released. Um, I, I've written other ones. I wrote a science fiction novel, um, if you can call it that. That was it's painful to read now, <laughs> but this was the first one where I was I was really proud of the result. And I felt like I, I, I did a did a complete job with it. Um, when it started it was 180,000 words. And it included a detailed scene that that represented the Baladoro, which was the, the essentially the lottery where new senators were inducted earlier than the usual age, um, where you, you know, reach your hand in. If you get the golden ball, the Baladoro, then you were, then you were inducted early. Um, <clears throat> a whole sequence with that, all these details about um, the inner workings of how Venetian society functioned. Uh, and it was just, it wasn't the story. You know, Stephen King really was right when he said, you know, the first draft is you telling yourself a story. The second draft is taking out the stuff that isn't the story. Um, and there was a lot in there that wasn't the story that I had to remove through through sequential edits. I've gone through probably six or seven uh, full draft uh, revisions um, as I as I kind of refined the story here. Uh, so it's, there's there's definitely a process of with a lot of my stories, I, I tend to lean too heavily into the history, and then I pull back a little bit, and I realize, okay, I'm in this instance, I may need to deviate from history a little bit, but it's in service of the story, because ultimately, historical fiction is first fiction. The historical is an adjective that describes it. Uh, so <clears throat> that said, you don't want to introduce elements that are clear violations. Um, as I said, everything that happens within the story is is authentic, if not actual. <clears throat> so there's one big event near the end of the novel that takes place when if you if you pour through history, you might say, oh, well, that didn't happen. Um, but there's space where it, 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 it very well may have. Um, so uh, <laughs> so long as it is credible and and the players are back where they need to be, but whenever the next major known event happens, I think it's fair play to, to incorporate it so long as you're you're keeping your characters and your storylines being consistent with the spirit of the times. Authenticity is more important than accuracy uh, in, in many cases. Uh, human life is messy. It includes a lot of starts and stops and backs and forths. Uh, you can't include all of that in a story because you, you would either lose readers or you would bore readers. And ultimately, the goal here is to tell a story that tries to recapture the spirit of the times and convey the essence of who these people were so that a reader can 
appreciate both the differences, but also the similarities. You know, I, I really believe that we're, we're more similar than we're different when we look at people throughout history. And if we had accepted different premises or had different limitations in what we knew, we would probably react in, in very, very much the same way. You talked about this a little already. Can you go a little more in depth about where you are in your author writing journey? Um, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is your third published novel, but you've already talked about that science fiction novel that uh, hasn't been published. Um, what have you learned along the way and where do you see yourself headed? So th- there are some striking differences between this novel and, and both the Welsh Dragon and uh, The Raven and the Dove, uh, as well as The Thief and the Nightingale, which is the next one I'll be publishing. Uh, it takes place in uh, um, Al-Andalus in uh, Muslim-controlled Spain uh, during the 11th century. Uh, and then the one I'm actually working through now, uh, actually drafting, uh, that takes place in southern Italy during the, the Norman invasion of southern Italy, the other Norman invasion, as they refer to it. All of those ones tend to really lean into the, the dual point of view story, where you know you have the two different sides and the two different perspectives as they're coming together. Uh, House Aratoli is much more of an adventure story. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, my wife says it's her favorite. It's her favorite one uh, because it's more. She says it's it's James Bond with pirates and prostitutes, and <laughs> not not quite that level. Um, but uh, you know, there's there are elements of romance in it. There's elements of adventure in it. There's elements of of danger, of conspiracy. You know, it's 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 a little bit of everything um, because that's what life is. Uh, I would say that I tend to lean into that that fusion of cultures uh, in 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 my more recent stories about when you have these 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 conflicting sometimes elements and and what is the it's like when you bring two two electric sources together and you get sparks flying all over the place. Where, where are those sparks going? What are they affecting? What are they? Uh, what's the damage that they're causing? And what else might they create? You know, what new things might might they fuse together? Um, it, 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 I really I kind of lean into those a lot. So I think a lot of my a lot of my stories, my later stories, and 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 what I have planned, kind of lean into that. Um, I also think another thread of of my books is really trying to understand and humanize very controversial things uh, throughout history. None of my characters are going to ever be, behave the way that a, a modern 21st century person behaves. Niccolo leans into vendetta in a very realistic way. That can be hard for a lot of people who are coming at it from a Judeo-Christian background or are coming at it from our modern heavy emphasis on law and order. <laughs> uh, with, with Niccolo, he has to be the law and order because the law and order of his time is either incomplete or completely missing. And so when that happens, how do you protect your family? Sometimes forgiveness is just capitulation and you need to react in a, in a very visceral way. Um, and, and that was, that was simply true. That can be hard for some people. Um, uh, with uh, the Raven and the Dove, I have some, I have some infidelity there that, is could be difficult for a lot of people to to see past those characters, but given the situation that they're in, I think I do a pretty good job of justifying uh, why they ultimately do see past that that issue. Um, all of my, you know, with uh, with the one I'm writing now about uh, about Roger de Hauteville in southern Italy, ultimately he's a conqueror. <laughs> you know, he goes in and he's 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 taking over swaths of territory with his brothers. Um, 
that can be difficult for some people to accept him as the hero. And yet, given the situation at the times, he was doing absolutely right, the right thing. Uh, and, and through the course of the story, you get to see that there are advantages to to putting an end to the cycle of conquest that happened at the time. So, you know, all of my stories they tend to they tend to lean into that 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 fusion of the two different sides, and they tend to all include some element of friction to a modern reader to try to get a modern reader out of their usual mindset and think about things a little bit differently. Uh, and through the course of what I established within the story in the world of the time, it's, it's up to me to make sure that I have the, the justification that, yeah, this, this person understood the situation at the time and they did the right thing. I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be any of these people in any of these situations, um, but, but that's why it's fiction. <laughs> have you had a chance to travel to Venice either for research or just for pleasure? I haven't. Um, my, I, I, I haven't. Um, the big reason for that nowadays is is that the kids are of an age where can't really leave them for, for a time, and and I'm not I'm not making the big bucks to be able to take them with us. Um, but I have been, I, I have interviewed uh, folks who have have gone to Venice and modern modern Venice, uh, to understand a lot of the sensory information. You know, like how far does this feel? What is the smell? What are the smell? What are the, the, the sounds of of the water lapping on the um, on on the sides of the the, the islands? You know, you know the, those kinds of uh, visceral details to to really understand not just the what because a lot of the what has has changed, um, but the how and the, the, the all of the the experience of being there. Um, so, you know, a lot of the people I've spoken to, they have. There are different gaps. They identify, you know, well, this is what I observed. This is what I observed. There are differences by, 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 by season, uh, by if, if there's just been a storm, if there's not been a storm, I tried to encapsulate that kind of information into the, into the story where I could. So you talked about your next work in progress, and this novel, House Aratoli, comes out this October, uh, very soon here. So you must be very busy and, you know, you talked about raising your kids as well. How do you find time to write and to, to do your research? So the researching never really ends. Um, you're always researching something. I love history, um, especially anything to deal with movements or the moments of change where it, it seems as if you have these these massive upheavals that occur suddenly. But when you dig into it, you can see that there's there were the writing was on the wall for a long time. Um, I, I love looking into that, and so those are always. I'm always on the on, on the uh, prowl for for new ideas and new new uh, periods and new new settings for for stories. Anything that really draws draws my interest. As far as time to actually write, uh, I take a different track than a lot of people do. A lot of people they try to smash through uh, novels as quickly as they possibly can. Um, they say, "Oh, finish a novel in in a in three months." I can't do that. Uh, I have to, I have to work. <laughs> uh, I have I have family, and both of those come first. Um, so my my schedule is a lot more limited. I try to just just finish one scene a week, just one scene. And what I find is when I do that, I'm I'm marinating on what's going to happen all day, uh, all week, <laughs> and I can I can really start thinking about it. I I, I send myself. Uh, onto my phone, the next scene, so that I can I can start thinking about okay, what do I want to have happen? Where do I want it to start? What are the different beats I need to include here? Um, it, what's the character journey for this scene? Um, it really helps me align 
the order of things to be logical. And, and you know, one of the things I would say is, is the strength of my writing is that my, my dialogue is, it, it, it integrates with my character's thoughts, with their actions in a very organic, natural way. And that's all because I have the time to, to sit and think about how I want to, how I want the scene and the conversation and the, and the points being raised to flow uh, over the course of that week. When I try to go faster, that breaks down. And so I end up just adding more time on the revision stage. So, you know, by doing this, I, I'm able to put together a first draft, which is pretty accurate and, and pretty close to where the end is now. I've gotten it down to a pretty good, pretty good point. So one scene a week, if I can, <laughs> and then I'm able to, um, to really, to really keep it, keep that pace going, but not too fast that I then, I then add work on the, on the back half. Yeah, it sounds like you're definitely able to add a sense of anticipation for the writing process. Yeah, and, and that helps it that helps it be fresh. Uh, because you know, before I before I write a word, I have a scene guy that lays out every single scene, uh, who the point of view character is, what needs to happen, what character growth happens, what you know, what, what all the plot emotion character beats, uh, all all within it. So I've right now for where I am, I'm on I'm on I can tell you I'm on scene fifty-two of eighty-two and the whole thing is 26 pages. <laughs> so I know kind of where, where I've been, where I'm going. Uh, that's all laid out. For a lot of people that could get very stale, but by, by providing all the beats, I still have all the connective tissue. I have all the rise and fall to, of the flow to be able to make it uh, uh, connect everything together in a very organic way. And that's still exciting and it keeps you engaged. And, and I often find that as I'm, as I'm doing that, I realize, you know what, the way I, I drafted this out, it's not going to work. Uh, I need to change it. Well, Kevin, um, congratulations on your newest novel, House Eratoli, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I, I really appreciate having uh, having someone like you who's who's doing uh, podcasts like these. Uh, it, it, you do a great job, and and you know, history is is with us. We are making history right now, and and and. You know, we we need to understand what has come before so we can influence what comes in the future. The other, the only other thing I would mention is, <laughs> uh, lest we become too arrogant, let's appreciate the fact that all of the stupid things that we look at people in the past and what they did, in the future people will look back at us and think the same thing. So <laughs> it adds a little hum humility in there, and that's always a good thing. So thank you for for your your uh, participation in the cause. <laughs> <laughs>